For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode of The Conspirators is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, hiding out in a bomb shelter with a microphone as your only companion, you don't always have time to sit down and read a book. That's where Audible.com comes in. They have an enormous selection of audiobooks read by some of the best voice talent in the world. Everything including science fiction, love stories, comedies, and my personal favorites, espionage, history, and murder mysteries. Over 180,000 titles available on your favorite audio device. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And now, on with the show. The best and the worst part of all stories is that they end. A good ending will leave you feeling satisfied, like finishing a good meal. But sometimes, with a really good meal, no matter how full we may be, we still come away wanting more. To return to that restaurant someday and see what else it has to offer. It's the same way with stories. We've seen the first movie or read the first book, now we want to know what happens next. That's where sequels come from. Even true stories from histories generally have a beginning, middle, and end. Although in many instances, where the story ends isn't quite as cut and dried. Time never stops moving, after all, and history is constantly being written. Which brings me to the point in this story where I'll begin. Near the end of a terrible event you probably already know quite well. It's what happened next to all the people who were there that tragic night that may surprise you. On the evening of April 14, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was attending a special performance of Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. While the president watched from his box overlooking the stage, an assassin crept up behind him. This man was John Wilkes Booth. Booth took out a Derringer from inside his coat and shot President Lincoln just behind his left ear. Booth had waited long enough for a large laugh to echo through the hall in the hope that it would cover the sound of the shot. But as soon as he fired, everyone stopped and stared in stunned disbelief in his direction. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln cried out as her husband slumped forward. Booth dropped the Derringer and took out a knife. Also in the President's box that night was a 28-year-old Army Major, Henry Rathbone, who leaped up from his seat to apprehend the assassin. Booth slashed at the man, cutting his left arm deeply just below the shoulder, all the way down to the bone. After, Booth clambered up over the box and leaped to the stage below. Booth landed badly and broke his leg, but he still managed to get to his feet and shout to the crowd the Latin phrase, Six Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. Then John Wilkes Booth limped off stage and managed to escape by horseback. You undoubtedly learned about the Lincoln assassination in school, but there's a lot more to the story of what happened to each of the people in the president's box that night your history teacher never told you. These are those stories. I'm Nate Hale, and I didn't like the play either. And this is The Conspirators. 
John Wilkes Booth was born on May 10, 1838 on a farm near Bel Air, Maryland, about 25 miles from Baltimore. He was the ninth of ten children, and he was pretty much destined from birth to become an actor. His father, Junius Brutus Booth Sr., was a London-born lawyer's son who eventually became one of the most prominent actors of his generation. His sons John Wilkes and Edwin followed in their father's footsteps and became quite well-known actors in their own right. Edwin, in fact, was a lot more famous than his younger brother. Think of John Wilkes Booth like the Billy Baldwin to his older brother's Alec. One quick aside about Edwin Booth. During the Civil War, the president's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, was traveling by train from New York to Washington. He got off the train at a stop in Jersey City. The platform was packed full of people that day, and in order to be polite, Robert Lincoln stepped back and allowed other people to pass before him pressing his back up against a train car. This situation would have been innocent enough, except the train behind him began moving, and Robert Lincoln fell off the platform and found himself stuck in the narrow gap between the platform and the moving train. Had not a quick-thinking bystander managed to have gotten a hold of Robert Lincoln's coat collar and yanked him back up to safety. That bystander was Edwin Booth. The brother of John Wilkes Booth saved the life of Abraham Lincoln's son. History is full of strange coincidences like that. But back to John Wilkes Booth. As a boy, Booth seemed to have everything going for him. His family had money, he was handsome, athletic, and popular. He attended private boarding schools and learned to become an expert at horsemanship and fencing. At the age of 13, he was enrolled in military school, but left a year later after his father's death. One day, while still in boarding school, Booth had his palm read by a gypsy fortune teller. She told him he had a bad hand, full of sorrow and trouble. Then he would go on to break hearts, but they'll be nothing to you. You'll die young and leave many to mourn you. You'll make a bad end. Young sir, I've never seen a worse hand, and I wish I hadn't seen it. It's impossible to know for sure whether this encounter really happened, or if it's just a bit of folklore added over time to spice up Booth's history. Keep in mind, even if it did really occur, such a prediction was pretty standard fare for a traveling fortune teller. One thing we do know about Booth is that throughout his life he craved notoriety. Booth pictured himself as a man destined for greatness. The actor's life provided him with some of the fame he so desperately sought, but by all accounts he wanted even more. Coupled with his sympathies for the South and his absolute loathing towards what he believed were Abraham Lincoln's tyrannical racial policies, Booth seemed dead set on a path toward doing something so terrible that no one would ever forget his name. His first plan was to kidnap President Lincoln and spirit him away to Richmond in exchange for the release of thousands of Confederate prisoners of war. But after hearing Lincoln give a speech about slavery, Booth abruptly changed plans and decided to murder the man instead. Booth's plan wasn't limited to just killing Lincoln, though. He was hoping to destroy the entire Lincoln administration by enlisting the aid of two co-conspirators to simultaneously assassinate Secretary of State William Seward and Vice President Andrew Johnson. One of the men chickened out at the last minute and ran away before making his attempt on the Vice President's life. The other only managed to wound Secretary of State Seward because a neck brace the man was wearing at the time saved him from the assassin's knife. That left Booth as the only one of the co-conspirators to actually complete his task. He fled Ford's Theater that night on horseback, 
a massive manhunt ensued, eventually leading to a standoff in a barn on the Garrett farm in Virginia, which the surrounding soldiers eventually lit on fire in order to smoke their prey out. An impulsive shot by Army Sergeant Boston Corbett struck Booth in the neck. The soldiers dragged his dying body out of the barn and into the yard, and there in the orange glow of the blaze, John Wilkes Booth uttered his last words, useless, useless. At least that's the official story. Although most historians discount such tales out of hand, there are a few accounts that have persisted through the years that claim John Wilkes Booth didn't really die in the burning barn that night. And in fact, he got away and lived a quiet existence for years after. In 1877, Finus L. Bates, a young Granbury, Texas lawyer, was summoned to the bedside of a dying acquaintance. When Bates entered the bedroom, a doctor informed him that the man who lay there in the bed didn't have much longer to live, and that he wished to speak to him alone. Finus L. Bates knew the man as John St. Helen, but as he lay there on his deathbed, St. Helen whispered a secret to Bates. My name is John Wilkes Booth, he said, and I am the assassin of President Lincoln. The man Finus Bates knew as John St. Helen told him a shocking tale. He claimed that killing President Lincoln had been part of a much larger conspiracy, and that someone else had died in that burning barn back in 1865. He claimed an innocent man's body was buried in the Booth family plot in Baltimore while he got away scot-free. St. Helen allegedly told Bates he had been moving around the country under a number of assumed names, until finally arriving in Granbury to die. Only that's not what happened. Despite the doctor's claims that he didn't have long to live, John St. Helen got better. When he was adequately recovered, St. Helen skipped town and Finus Bates never heard from him again. Not while he was still alive, at least. It wasn't until a quarter century later that Finus Bates discovered what happened to John St. Helen. He read a story in a Memphis newspaper about a man named David E. George who committed suicide in an Enid, Oklahoma hotel room in 1903. It was the man's second suicide attempt, and during his first attempt nine months earlier, he had made another deathbed confession to the wife of a Methodist minister. I am the one who killed the best man that ever lived, he said. I am John Wilkes Booth. Side-by-side illustrations of the dead man next to an illustration of Booth bore an uncanny resemblance. Bates also recognized the man. It was John St. Helen. Bates traveled to Enid to see the embalmed body of the man for himself. He tried to gain custody of the unclaimed body, but the owner of the mortuary refused. The mortician realized he had an opportunity to make some money off the corpse, so he dressed the body in a suit and sat him up in a chair in the front parlor of the funeral home it became a local tourist attraction. The embalming, along with the arsenic the man had consumed to commit suicide, proved to be very good preservatives, and the corpse turned into a mummy right there in the parlor. In 1907, Bates published a book in which he detailed St. Helen's account of killing the president and his subsequent escape from custody. Bates eventually did assume custody of the body and began renting the corpse out to carnivals, state fairs, and midways. Over the years, the mummy developed a reputation as being cursed. In 1920, a circus train carrying the mummy derailed en route to San Diego, killing eight people. A few years later, the Saturday Evening Post reported that nearly every showman who had exhibited the mummy was financially ruined. At one point in time, someone actually tried to kidnap the mummy and hold it for ransom. 
Bates died in 1923 and his widow sold the corpse to carnival owner William Evans. Evans quit the carnival business a few years later and he took the corpse with him back to his potato farm in Idaho where he posted signs for tourists to come see the man who murdered Lincoln. This effort at attempting to turn the mummy into a tourist attraction fizzled and he was even fined $50 in Big Spring, Texas for illegally transporting a corpse. Evans sold the mummy to another carnival owner, John Harkin, in 1930 for $5,000. Harkin traveled the country with a mummy in the back of his battered truck. Harkin had a standing offer to anyone who could prove the mummy was not that of John Wilkes Booth, and he often boasted how he never paid a dime. In 1931, a group of Chicago doctors examined and x-rayed the mummy and confirmed that injuries to the mummy's leg, broken thumb, and neck scar were all consistent with reports about Booth. Although a few did point out that it was the mummy's right leg that had been fractured, whereas Samuel L. Mudd reportedly set the bones in Booth's left leg. In 1937, the mummy became part of Jay Gould's Million Dollar Circus, where it continued to travel the country and bring in the crowds along with the elephants and trapeze artists. The mummy disappeared sometime in the 1970s, and some reports have suggested it may now be in the hands of a private collector. Some people have called for exhuming the body buried in Booth's grave for DNA testing, but so far, the courts have refused. At the time of President Lincoln's death, his wife Mary Todd Lincoln was probably the most controversial First Lady to have ever resided in the White House. Much has been made about Mary Lincoln's strong personality. She was known to turn angry and vindictive towards even the tiniest slight she perceived. She also had an extravagant streak, and she liked to spend money. She was what we would refer to as a shopaholic in today's terminology. After moving into the White House, she blew through the congressional budget allotted for redecorating in record time. In the early days of the Civil War, the press shredded her for embarking on a rather insensitive shopping trip to New York and Philadelphia. As a Southerner in the Civil War White House, she was often viewed with suspicion. Some people even dared accuse her of being a Southern spy. Throughout her life, she suffered more personal tragedy than any of us would wish on her worst enemy. She was sitting right next to her husband when he was shot and killed. On top of that, she outlived most of her children, and her last living son would take her to court and commit her to a mental institution for several months shortly before her death in 1882. In recent years, medical scholars have suggested she may have suffered from bipolar disorder or even pernicious anemia, a blood disorder that results in many similar symptoms to those exhibited by Mary Todd Lincoln throughout her life. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Perhaps the only person who was in Lincoln's box that night whose personal tragedy compares to Mary Todd Lincoln is that of Major Henry Rathbone. If you look up newspaper illustrations of Lincoln's assassination, you will see Major Rathbone rising up from his seat with his arm outstretched as Booth takes the fatal shot. Rathbone was President Lincoln's guest that night, along with his fiancée, Clara H. Harris. 
As I previously mentioned, Rathbone attempted to apprehend Booth after he shot Lincoln, but the assassin cut his left arm deeply with a dagger he'd brought with him. Rathbone married Clara Harris two years later, and together they had three children. But Rathbone was never the same after that night. The thought that he'd been unable to save the president haunted him. As President Lincoln lay dying, Rathbone tried to open the doors to the box, but Booth, he discovered, had barred the doors with a piece of wood. It took him what felt like an eternity to get the wood plank out of the way as people battered against the door from the other side. By the time the door was open and a doctor was able to attend President Lincoln, it was too late to save him. Rathbone became delirious that night from loss of blood, and although his wounds healed, his mind did not. By the fall of 1882, when Rathbone was 45 years old, he was a changed man. He suffered a litany of mysterious medical problems, including heart palpitations, nervous sweats, and difficulty breathing. These are all symptoms we would probably recognize today as post-traumatic stress disorder. Rathbone's conditions forced him to retire from the army in 1870. Shortly after, he and his family set sail for Germany, where his wife Clara hoped the change of scenery would help the terrible memories fade away. But they didn't, and Henry's health continued to fail. He became more and more paranoid, and was constantly convinced that Clara was going to leave him and take the children. In the early dawn hours on Christmas Eve 1883, Henry finally broke. He grabbed his revolver and a knife, and he headed toward his children's bedroom. Clara blocked Henry's path, and managed to talk him into following her to their own bedroom, where she shut the door behind them. It was there that Henry shot and then stabbed Clara to death. He turned the knife on himself, but his suicide attempt failed. He was soon arrested and committed to a mental asylum, where, for the remainder of his life, he suffered constant hallucinations about terrifying apparitions coming out of the walls for him. Henry Rathbone died in the asylum eight years later, on August 7th, 1891. Which leaves us with President Lincoln. Of course I could talk for hours about President Lincoln's life, but even in death, he had stories to tell. After Abraham Lincoln was pronounced dead, his body was taken from Washington, D.C. by train to be laid to rest in a tomb in Springfield, Illinois. The 1,654-mile trip would take 13 days, during which 13 stops were planned to retrace the route Lincoln took during his first inauguration. In order to preserve the president's body for such a long journey, doctors Charles Brown and Henry Cottrell had to utilize what was then a brand new procedure of arterial embalming that had been created by doctors in Europe. The procedure proved to be a remarkable success, as would be seen over a decade later when a group of men attempted to steal Lincoln's corpse. In 1876, Abraham Lincoln's body lay within an above-ground white marble sarcophagus in a tomb in Springfield's Oak Ridge Cemetery. Oak Ridge was a rural cemetery, situated about two miles from town. There was no groundskeeper and no night watchman, and the only thing standing between a would-be grave robber and the president's body was a metal padlock on the tomb's chamber door. But then, added security was never considered a priority. After all, who would want to steal the president's corpse? Enter Big Jim Canale. Big Jim was a local crime boss as well as a counterfeiter, and earlier that year he had lost the services of his best engraver of counterfeit plates, Benjamin Boyd, who had been sentenced to 10 years in the state penitentiary. Canale got the idea to steal the president's corpse and hold it for ransom in order to pressure the governor to release his man from prison. 
they also demanded $200,000. For the job, Canale recruited two other members of his gang, saloon keeper Terrence Mullen and fellow counterfeiter Jack Hughes. What they didn't have was someone with actual body snatching experience. That's where they made their biggest mistake. They invited a man named Louis Sweagles, who claimed to be a professional grave robber to join them. Only Sweagles wasn't a grave robber. He was actually a paid informant for the Secret Service. Sweagles laid the whole plan out for his real employers, and a group of Secret Service agents and police staked out Lincoln's grave and waited for the gang to strike. Strike is a bit of an overstatement, though. It turns out the men Big Jim hired were about as inept as criminals come. Mullen and Hughes couldn't pick the padlock to save their lives, and they ultimately had to spend the better part of an hour cutting it off with a file. Once they were finally inside, they realized they had no way of moving Lincoln's 500-pound cedar and lead coffin. They were left scratching their heads as to what to do next, when a police detective who was hiding outside accidentally discharged his pistol. The shot sent the two would-be grave robbers running. They made a beeline right back to Mullen's saloon in Chicago, where they were arrested a couple days later. Years later, in 1901, in order to prevent such a grave robbery from happening again, Robert Lincoln would arrange for his father's body to be placed inside a steel cage and lowered into a 10-foot-deep vault on the grounds of Oak Ridge Cemetery. People who got a glimpse of Lincoln's body were amazed at how well-preserved his corpse was. Doctors Brown and Cottrell had done a remarkable job of preservation, and witnesses claimed the president looked nearly as good as the day he'd been placed in the ground. There is one last thing I'd like to say about Abraham Lincoln. President Lincoln was not known to be a particularly superstitious man, but for some reason he was known to be quite interested in the meaning of dreams and what they had to say about future events. In 1863, he once wrote a letter to his wife, who at the time was in Philadelphia with her then 10-year-old son. Lincoln warned Mary to put away Tad's pistol because he had an ugly dream about him. Now, there isn't any evidence that anything would have bad have occurred if Mary Lincoln hadn't heeded her husband's warning. But if you're a parent, I think you'd do what your spouse was saying in that particular instance, just in case. Just a few days before his assassination on April 14, 1865, President Lincoln allegedly told Ward Hill Lamont, his friend and former law partner, about a disturbing dream he'd had. In the dream, President Lincoln described a sense of subdued stillness that seemed to be all around him, and he could hear people weeping as he walked from room to room throughout the White House, but he couldn't find anyone. That is until he entered the East Room, where he found a covered corpse guarded by soldiers and surrounded by a crowd of mourners. When Lincoln asked one of the soldiers who had died, the soldier in his dream replied, the president, he was killed by an assassin. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. This show is brought to you by Audible.com. Right now, you can sign up for a 30-day free trial and get a free download by signing up at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. Special thanks to you, my faithful listeners. I couldn't do this show without you. Please help us continue to grow by telling your friends and family about us and subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. We're also always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. <laughs>